also starting something new. Uh, we're starting the book of Exodus. Um, and I'm very excited about it. I hope you guys are too. Uh, I'll give a brief overview of our context and where we're at and who's writing this and all these things. The first five books of the Bible um, are known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, and they are all written by Moses. So at least attributed to Moses. There's some stuff in there that I think was added maybe be somebody else. Um, but but it's mostly, mostly written by Moses, where we, we, we think. And, uh, and the book of Exodus is as well. Um, the date of the Exodus, well, the date of the actual Exodus, um, we put at 1446 B.C. Now, there are some people who put it at, uh, at 1266. If you're, if you're wondering why we put it at 1446, uh, and, and whether or not you might agree with the 1266 number, um, you can re- go read about it. <laughs> so I did a lot, and I'm comfortable with the 1446. If you're just comfortable going wrong with me, then uh, we'll do that. But you can do, there's a lot of research about it. You can read a whole thing about it. Bore most of you to tears, but that's, we're going with 1446. Um, and then it was written, of course, uh, during the, the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. Really, all five books are ri- written during that time. And the reason Moses is writing these, the reason Moses writes Genesis through Deuteronomy, of course, um, is because they're wandering in the wilderness. After they, after they le- exit um, uh, Egypt, after the Exodus, um, they're supposed to go to the Promised Land. They, they make a brief stop at Mount Sinai, and they're supposed to go into the Promised Land, and spoiler alert, they don't go. They're too scared. They're too scared, and so they don't obey God. God says, go ahead and go. They don't do it. Uh, we'll get to that. But they won't, they won't go. And so they're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years for that whole generation to die off. The next generation is going to be the generation to enter the Promised Land. But that next generation needs to know the history. They need to know all the things that God has done. You need to make sure it carries on. And so Moses most directly is writing to them. He's wanting to make sure they know how did we get here so they don't make the same mistakes as the previous generation. Um, and then, of course, it goes on further than that. But even if, if Moses knew, like, hey, this is for future generations, I, even if God revealed it to him, I don't think he would have any sense that we'd be reading it here in 2019, right? He, he's, that, that's so far away. Like if I told you like, hey, you're going to write something, uh, I want you to write a letter, and people are going to read it for generations, you still wouldn't have that in mind, right? And that's kind of where we're at. So Moses is writing to the Israelites that are about to enter the promised land. He wants them to know the history. Uh, he's wanting them to know what God has done and what he commands and, and all these things so that they'll be ready to enter the promised land. So for us today, right, if that's who it's most directly written to, it's also for our benefit to read it and understand it. Um, Exodus is a a foundational event in God's plan for the world. It's a foundational, central event in uh, in history uh, in terms of God's plan for redemption. Um, And it foreshadows in major ways the actual event of the Exodus, foreshadows Jesus' work on the cross. And so those are kind of the two things, that, the reasons we'd be getting into it and the reasons we're going to study it. Um, and so we're going to dive right in. So chapter 1. We'll start off with exceedingly strong here in chapter 1. We're looking at verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. 
Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So this introduction... Uh, to the book provides background that we already know, right? For those of us who have been around, for those who have been around, we just finished studying Genesis, uh, and so that should all be very familiar to you, how they came to be in this position, right? Most specifically, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He goes down to Egypt. Uh, he's a prisoner. He's a slave, then he's a prisoner. Then he ex- uh, elevated to the number two in all of Egypt, Um, He rescues all of Egypt, most of the surrounding world, uh, and his family by responding to the vision God had given him that there would be a famine, but that there's a way to to prepare for it and to get through it. And so he obeys and follows God, and he's able to rescue all these people. And then ultimately, he brings his family to Egypt uh, to, to sojourn for a while to get through the famine, but they stick around. They stick around. They stay there for a while, and all of that generation dies off. Right, Joseph and his brothers, they all die, but they pass their history and their faith and their, their culture, their stories to the next generation. And that's really notable, right? Think about that, that these stories and everything survive their sojourn in Egypt. 400 years of people continuing to pass down and preserve their culture and their family stories and their, their relationship with Yahweh in the face of all of the gods that are worshipped in Egypt, the fact that they held on to that is really noticeable, uh, notable. And it's really to God's credit that God preserved them through it, or that he knew that that would be a problem, and so he preserves them through it. And so then we see them multiply greatly, right? He goes on and on and on about they multiply greatly. And there's two things I want to point out about their multiplication. Number one, that their multiplication was a fulfillment of God's creation intent, right? God's original purpose for human beings is multiplication. In in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them, meaning mankind, Adam and Eve here, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right, that's his original creation intent. So the fact that they're flourishing and multiplying, that's a fulfillment of God's creation intent. But even on top of that, their multiplication is a fulfillment of God's promises to the patriarchs. Right, God's promised the patriarchs and he's going to fulfill it there is promises to them he promised abraham and isaac and jacob three generations he promised each of these men that he would make them into a great nation we can see this you can either remember or we can go back genesis chapter 12 the lord said to abraham go from your country and from your kindred and for your father's house to the land that i will show you and i will make you a great nation i will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you i will dis- i will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed that was god's original promise to abraham that sets all of this in motion but he also says it specifically to isaac his son He tells him in chapter 26, verse 4, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
And then he says it, repeats it again to Jacob. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Right, so God had promised these men that I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to multiply your descendants. And now that's happening in Egypt. It's happening under conditions that are not ideal, but it's happening. God is fulfilling his promise. Maybe not the way that they thought it would happen, but it's happening, right? And that's, that should sound familiar to most of us, right? God doing what he said he would do in your life, but in a way you didn't expect. That's most of our story. That's the way that God works. But we also see that he's making them into this great nation and really the multiplication, them increasing in number, is the only way for them to become a great nation. Right? In order for God's plan to work, the Israelites and their history have to become noteworthy. You ever think about that? That in order for God's plan to work, in order to eventually bring this Messiah who, to have worldwide consequences, his people also must be noteworthy. Right? His people have to be uh, worth knowing right they have to have enough of a history you can't just have one guy and his kid and then that oh this is the messiah and and god just told us right he has to become a nation and so they do become a nation here in egypt god fulfills this promise all right moving on to the next section slavery slavery verses 8 through 14 of chapter 1 says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Okay. So we have this first thing that happens, right? This king arises over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And that's, this is the root of the problem. This is the root of the conflict. Joseph was this noteworthy guy in Egypt. His status as number two made him, uh, and it gave him and his family protection, right? They're, they're living in Egypt. They're living in good land in Egypt uh, to start with um, because of Joseph's relationship with Pharaoh and because of his position, his favored position. But notably, Joseph didn't raise his sons as Egyptians. He didn't give them Egyptian names. He allowed his father to adopt them. He, he very much associated himself with his family. He didn't take on this new mantle of Egyptian Joseph. He remained an Israelite. He remained his father's son. And his sons remained Israelites and were given Israelite names. And so... That made it so they, they didn't have this natural progression into other governmental positions, right? They didn't move into those positions. They didn't follow up with, with Joseph. And so after years pass, right, because Joseph is even buried in an Egyptian tomb. He's, he, he's made into a mummy and put in an Egyptian coffin. And, and he's given this, this kind of royal burial. But he doesn't 
maintain that, his family doesn't maintain that notoriety. And so eventually, a king arises who doesn't know Joseph. And also, it's also notable that the, the Egyptian pharaoh's line is interrupted at this time. There's a whole period where uh, this group called the Hyksos Hikes, um, uh, take over. And, and so they, they are ruling Egypt uh, for a time. And so there's, there's a break in the lineage of Egyptian pharaohs. And so eventually this new king arises over Egypt. I, if you picked up the study guide, um, there, there, I, we have a study guide available in the back. It has most of the things that I have up here. Um, uh, and, and it has a little chart on there of Egyptian history and, and, and lining out the pharaohs and that kind of thing, if you're interested in that. Uh, it'll probably be in future study guides as well. But I would encourage you to pick up this week's study guide if you've never done it before. Uh, we also email it out if we run out of... Um, uh, of guides, but this new king arises is probably this this king, uh, Amo, Pharaoh Amosis, uh, who is the first one to come on after the Hyksos, and so um, he's this king that arose that did not know Joseph. Always, so these Israelites mean nothing to him other than that they are foreigners dwelling among his land. They're foreigners, uh, this foreign presence that continues to multiply seemingly increasingly, increasingly. They keep getting more and more numerous. And so he's worried about a potential uprising and escape, right? He knows, hey, if some enemies attack us again, like the Hyksos did, if, they, if some, some enemy attacks us, maybe these Israelites will join with them and, and they'll rise up. And so he had this good reason. He, he noted that, hey, this has happened before. we got to watch out for these people. But he also um, cleverly and predictably uses fear to incite and justify the oppression of these foreigners. Uh, and that, if you study history at all, that is over and over again throughout history, a tactic that is used by leaders to incite fear in their people is by pointing to some foreign group. Um, to, to cause this fear, right? That's what happens in, um, that's what happened in, in Nazi Germany. Uh, that's what happened in, in South Africa uh, and over and over again throughout history where they point to a foreign group and say, these are the people are the cause of your problems. These are the people to be afraid of. And they incite this fear uh, and cause oppression. And that's what happens here with them, right? They, they, they are, are worried that they might rise up uh, they see how numerous they are. But notice an interesting, there's an interesting thing there that he says, right? He says he's afraid that they might rise up and escape. Right? Why is he, like, again, most of the time throughout history when this happens, it's like, let's oppress them and also kick them out, right? Let's get these people out of here if they're the ones that are causing problems. Let's ban them from our land. Let's either kill them off or run them out. But here... He's worried that they might escape. Now, why would he be worried that they would escape if there's such a scourge on them? Well, people who encounter, encounter Israelites throughout this time period and, and, and leading up to this moment even um, consistently notice a kind of like good luck side effect is what they, how they would term it. Right? They, see, they notice this good luck side effect. We see it, we saw it in Genesis. Right? We saw it in Genesis when, when Jacob tries to leave Laban's house. Uh, he doesn't want him to leave, right? If we go to Genesis chapter 30, 27 and 28, Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. 
Right? Laban doesn't want Jacob to leave because he sees that he is prospered because of Jacob's presence. And God actually has told him that he's prospered because of Jacob's presence. It happens with Joseph when he goes to Potiphar's house as a slave. He's just there as a lowly slave, but in Genesis 39, verses 2-4, through it tells us the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. But they, they notice that this happens, where the, and, and there's more examples we could get into, but, but people notice, hey, there's some kind of special blessing associated with the Israelites. Why is that? Well, God specifically said that that would be the case. He said that when he talked to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Right? He, he gives them blessing. He's going to cause them to be a blessing wherever they go. He has special favor on them. They are his people. And so people notice this happen. And so Pharaoh has noticed this as well. Right? The Pharaoh even notices, hey, there's, these people are good to have around in that way, but there's a danger to them because what if they rose up? And so he's got to scheme it just exactly right. How can he make this work? And so the Israelites are enslaved and worked under increasingly harsh conditions. Now it is noteworthy that not all of the years in Egypt were these harsh conditions, harsh slavery years. They were never in a, in a favored position, aside from just when they got there and Joseph was still alive. But really, ever since that time, they go kind of downhill. But they, their really harsh conditions start around like 1570, that this serious oppression happens. They're not treated well. And, and this, this harsh treatment happens. And so this lasts, you know, like around 124 years or so, enough time for many people to live and die under those conditions, right? Enough time for, for people to be born and live their entire lives under those conditions, to live under harsh oppression, be beaten, drowned, you know, all these things worked to the bone that they live under these conditions. Many generations that happens. And so, as the, impression, as the oppression increased, the faith of the Israelites is tested. Right? They're tested as this oppression increases. They have these stories. Like I said, this has been passed down. Their culture is preserved. They know what happened with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know that Joseph brought them to Egypt. They know the blessing that has happened. But now years and years and years, generation after generation after generation, lives and dies in slavery in Egypt, and now the conditions are getting worse, and it's been so long, and is God ever going to rescue us? And for some of those people that were born then, the answer is no. For them, the answer is no. They live and they die at the hands of the Egyptian taskmasters. Some of them die young because of those masters, beat them to death, Right? They're oppressed severely. They question, like, is God going to rescue us? Are these stories true? Are we really ever going to the promised land? We can see that he's making us a great nation, but we're a great nation and that we're enslaved. How can we really be? We can be a numerous nation, but are we going to be a great nation if we're living in slavery here? 
And they question these things. They question it all the time. And this same thing happens to us when we endure suffering. Where we endure suffering, we have the same kind of questions. Is God ever going to rescue us? Is this ever going to, are we ever going to be healed? Am I ever going to be fixed? Is are things ever going to get better? Is, is this going to just continue in this way? But just like those Egyptians, some, and just like those Egyptians, some of us will never see rescue. Right? Christians, good Christians, live and die in, 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 in conditions that are difficult at times. Right? Some of us will, will contract illnesses and not recover from them. Some people, God will heal, but some of us, it won't happen. Right? We wait for Jesus to come back. We wait for the world to be fixed. We wait for conflict to end. And sometimes we don't see it happen. We don't see the healing. We don't see this happen. It doesn't mean that it's not happening just because it doesn't happen to us. God's perspective is bigger than our lifetime. And that's important for us to keep in mind that God's perspective is bigger than our lifetime. And even our perspective is bigger than that because when we look back on this story of the Egyptians, we say, well, does God rescue? Does God rescue Israel from Egypt? Yes. Right, yes, he rescues them. He brings them out. But for some of those people that actually lived in that time, they never saw that in their lifetime. And so for them, they would go, no, God didn't rescue us. But we can see from history and looking back, we can say, oh yes, it did happen. God did rescue them in a miraculous way. And so we have to learn to have that perspective in our own lives to say, God is doing something that's bigger than me, bigger than my lifetime, bigger than my family, bigger than even the generations that I will know in my family. God is doing something big. And I need to trust him that he has a plan that goes be, that's bigger than my life. Also, I point out, we shouldn't miss the irony that, that, that the uh, descendants of these brothers who sold their brother into slavery in Egypt end up as slaves in Egypt themselves. Right? There, there's, some, there's some irony there that their descendants end up as slaves in Egypt as well. Um, and, and I think God's noting that, right? That, God, that God's, God put them in that position, and that's what, that's what then ends up happening. They, they, they choose to, to try treachery, and God ends up having this play out in this way. Um, now another interesting thing here is that the Pharaoh isn't named and that's, that's very frustrating for a lot of modern readers, right? That we want to know what, who, just tell us who the Pharaoh was and we don't have to guess at the time period. Is it 1446 or 1266? We could just know if you just told us who the Pharaoh was, right? We want to know that. We want to know that. But it, he actually isn't significant, Right? Who the actual Pharaoh was isn't significant. It's his position and his opposition to Yahweh and his people that matters. So the specific Pharaoh doesn't matter. It's his position and what he represents as being against Yahweh, against the God of the Bible, against the God of the Israelites. He is the center of the story. Yahweh is the center of the story. He is going to rescue his people from any who would oppose him. He's the one who's going to rescue He's the center of the story. Who the Pharaoh, specific Pharaoh is doesn't matter. It's his position and how he is rebelling against God, how he is trying to oppose God that matters. Another thing I'll point out is, is there's this seven words thing that happens, and this happens throughout the book of Exodus. We'll probably point it out a couple times. That in the book of Exodus, when there's a significant word or significant thing that happens, they'll often use seven words in a in succession to describe it. 
And so it happens here um, in, in verse 7. He uses it to describe Israel's growth, right? Where he says that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Okay, seven words to describe their growth. It then happens as well to here in, in this section to describe Israel's slavery, right? That they ruthlessly made the people work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Okay, you see that it's a, it's a poetic kind of thing, element that is added in here. And it's, it's to highlight these two things, right? Highlight their growth, their multiplication, and now highlight their oppression. They're highlighting both and, and specifically linking them together. And then he directly links them together when he says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Right? He's linking these two things together. He's saying, when the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. They continue to increase because their oppression and their multiplication Right? Both their oppression and the blessing that God has given them are connected. He connects those two things together. And he says the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Oppression couldn't stop God from fulfilling his promises or his plan for his people. And that's true for us as well. That our own oppression, our own problems, the own ways that, that Satan attacks us can't stop God's plans for us. That what God wants to do in your life can't be stopped by the schemes of Satan. And this happens, you know, in our own lives, in, in our own country, like a lot of us are concerned about the, the direction the country's going in, um, how things are happening, and, and we see an increased hostility toward Christians. And that's valid, that's real, that is happening. It's frustrating when we see that happening, we see the country moving further away from God and, and, and seemingly becoming hostile toward Christians. And it's even where even to the point now where intolerance towards Christians is basically the only intolerance that is acceptable. Um, that, that's, that's certainly true. Even, even not, not just toward conservative beliefs, because you can't be intolerant towards Muslims, for example, but you can be towards Christians. Or you can mock Christians all you want, but if you try to mock another religious group, that's not going to be the case. There's a reason for that, and we shouldn't be surprised Right? We shouldn't be surprised that if what we believe is real, if, this, if the spiritual forces, the spiritual warfare that's happening is real, then it makes sense that Christians would be unique. And it doesn't no good for us to specifically complain about that and say, but that's not fair. Right? But yeah, it's not. But because what you believe is real, because Jesus is real, and because demonic forces are real, those things will happen. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 14, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So the other side of that is that we should be encouraged that historically the church has thrived and multiplied under persecution. Historically, where the church has been persecuted, it grows. 
Just like God did here with the Egyptians, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The same is true for the church. The same has been true historically for the church, that where the church is oppressed, it often grows because God gives it that special blessing. He, and, and we see here that the Israelites, they thrive under oppression. We'll see in the book of Genesis that though they thrive under oppression, when they get free, they get in trouble right? They do great. They're doing great as slaves. They're doing great relying on God, being slaves. It's the minute they get free, they start making golden calves and things. Again, spoiler alert, but it's not going to go good. That should be telling for us as well, right? That, that we do best when we most readily recognize our need for God. Right? We, we thrive when we readily recognize our need for God. Now, is the only way for that to happen, for your life to go terribly? No. Is it the most likely way for it to happen? Yes. <laughs> right? Like, so, so often God uses those, he uses difficult things to push you toward him because it's what, how you best live when you're most relying on him. And we can pray that God would uh, help us to rely on him and recognize our need for him aside from those things. But oftentimes that's what it takes. Oftentimes that's what happens. So they continue to make this, their lives worse. They continue to multiply. God, Pharaoh's tr- tactics cannot stop the Israelites from fulfilling God's plan for them. Moving on to our last section here, Hebrew midwives. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, he shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. (laughs) So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Okay. So there's some humor in there, but it's dark, right? This is, this is Pharaoh's final solution, where he's tried to oppress them. He's tried to be brutal, brutally enslave them, uh, but they continue to multiply. They continue to thrive. So he decides to go directly to the source of the multiplication and try to stop it immediately. He decides to kill all the males because he decides to kill all the males because he's concerned about a military uprising, right? But he still needs Hebrews around. He needs slaves for his work projects, and he needs this special blessing that they seem to bring. So he's trying to be strategic and say, well, if I kill all the males, there won't be men to be young soldiers, uh, but we can still have slaves, and we can still have this blessing. He's trying to, to make, a, make this work for himself. And so we see Pharaoh kind of step into this antichrist mode. Uh, and we can, it's obvious why this policy is evil, right? He's killing babies, it's obviously evil, but it's also directly opposed to God in, in two ways that I want to point out. First, that it it's opposes God's creation intent, like we talked about earlier. 
In the same way that it fulfills God's, that their multiplication fulfills God's creation and intent, this directly opposes God's creation and intent for his people. That, the, that he made them for this purpose, he made them with this purpose in mind, that they would multiply, and Pharaoh's directly opposing God's will in that. And secondly, it opposes God's plan for redemption, or again, it opposes God's, God's purpose, uh, promises to the patriarchs. Right in, in Genesis 3.15, God had promised from the very beginning, well, I'll put to these, this is he's talking to the, the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning, the promise of redemption, the God, promise of God fixing everything is through offspring. So he's directly opposing God's plan for redemption. And it's also notable that Pharaoh's two strategies in this chapter for opposing God's people are the same as Satan's strategies for opposing human beings. Right? Slavery and death. Slavery and death. That, he, that Pharaoh enslaves the people and then institutes this, this death sentence upon all the babies. The same is, the same is true for us that, that Satan seeks to enslave us in sin, right? That's a term that is used repeatedly in the New Testament, that we are become slaves to sin, that we feel like we can't stop. And that's why if you, if you have things in your life you know are wrong, you know you shouldn't do, but you feel like you can't help yourself, you keep doing it, it's because it's a slavery to sin that God talks about. Right? That we, we get in this pattern of feeling like we have to do it to sustain our life or sustain our image, or sustain our happiness, or something that we feel like we have to do it. That's that slavery to sin. And then ultimately that sin results in death. That death is the ultimate tool of Satan against people. And so we see that here with, with, uh, with Pharaoh. He enslaves the people, and now he's instituted this death sentence. But we see these women of God, and this is an awesome thing, right? To know, we talked last, about the last section that, that Pharaoh's not named, and it's kind of frustrating he's not named. But I think it's beautiful to see that Pharaoh's not named. It's like, it's just whoever the Pharaoh is. He's not a, who cares about him? But these women are named, right? These Hebrew midwives, they are named. And, and Shifra means beautiful one, and Pua means splendid one. Right there, they're given. They have these beautiful names, and they are they are named because they matter. And they 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 commit this like civil disobedience, essentially. Right? They refuse to obey Pharaoh. They choose to obey God and what He would want rather than them. And this this idea of civil disobedience in the face of uh, governmental command is uh, is important, right? For us, it's crucial doctrine for Christians that that when God's commands. Essentially, that God's commands always trump man's commands. Or that they can see, they know that this isn't right to do this, and so they refuse to obey, and they choose to obey God. That's something that we have to keep in mind, because we don't know what will happen with the law. Right now, our country has good laws, but we don't know what will happen. And we don't know what we might be asked to do. And so we have to be willing to, and ready to say, when those commands violate my faith, when those commands violate what God has said for me, I'm going to obey God. I'm not going to obey them. There's a, common, uh, there's a common misconception that I hear all the time and I see all the time on social media and that people will go, oh, it, it used to be that you could pray at school and you could bring a Bible to school. Newsflash, you still can. They just don't, right? A, you still can, 100%. They can't stop you. Under current laws, 
You could pray at school if you want to, uh, and you can bring a, a Bible to school. I did it, uh, and I know kids that have done it. You can still do it today. That's a misconception. You can still do those things. Um, and it's just whether or not you choose to. Now, they're not going to institute prayer, but uh, looking back on the teachers that I had, I wouldn't have wanted instituted prayer. <laughs> I wouldn't want those men and some of those men, some of them. I would not want some of them leading me in prayer because I know they don't believe it. Uh, but I could pray all I wanted to and I often did. Uh, it's something that you're allowed to do in, in public schools uh, that we might not know of. But if a day came in which it was illegal, and they said, no, you can't bring your Bible to school, first of all, that would be the best thing you could do to get kids to bring your Bible to school. Right? If all of a sudden it was like, no, you can't have Bibles at school, right? ask a teacher about fidget spinners, and they say, like, you can't bring them anymore. They're still bringing them, spin on the side. Right? Like, it's like those, th- that would make it better <laughs> for a lot of kids. Uh, but but it, would, it would still do it. I would still tell my kids to do it and go ahead and get in trouble. Get sent to the office. I'll give you, a, I'll, I'll buy you a Slurpee after. You know, like, that's something that we would have to say, no, I'm going to continue to do it anyway. Right, those are the kind of things that, we, uh, if those things come up, we go, no, we obey God, we don't obey man. <clears throat> and that's what we see happening here. Now, there's an interesting question that I, I came across in, uh, in reading a commentary. It never would have even occurred to me, but I, I want to make sure I address it, that there's a question of, like, was it wrong for the midwives to lie to Pharaoh? Okay, was it wrong for the midwives to lie to Pharaoh? And and a, turns out, a lot of people say yes, right? Even guys like uh, like Augustine and Calvin, uh, major theologians have have argued like yes, their lie was reprehensible to God. Um, and and so, although I recognize I'm doing this in the face of great theological minds like Augustine and Calvin, I will say that I think that is ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous to say that this lie was wrong. Um, it, it was in the, in the service of what they were doing. They were opposing an evil command. And even in saying what they said to Pharaoh, they're opposing an evil command. Um, they're lying to a man that's intent on genocide uh, and they're waylaying his attempts. Right? That's a good thing. Uh, and, it, and the thing is, it, it wasn't even a, like... And some, Theologian on the other side, this is a major argument, that it's, it's hardly even like a, a, an intentional lie. It's more like a joke. Right? There's a reason you guys all laughed. Right? You all laughed when we read that section because that's a crazy thing to say. Right? To be like, well, no, we midwives see these Hebrew women. They just pop them out and we can't even get there. Then why are there midwives? <laughs> right? Why are there midwives? Why do they have? Why is that a job? If this is true, why is that a job? Right? And so it, it's almost like they, they weren't even, they weren't really trying to deceive anyone. They were, they were saying, you know, it's kind of like a joke to oppose them. Um, but more, the, the bigger reason that I could say, hey, God affirms and approves this is that he blesses them immediately afterward. Right? Immediately, the very next sentence says, so God. The very next sentence says, so God dealt well with the midwives. There's no punishment. There's no God saying like, oh, wait, nope, you have to just be straight up and say, nope, Pharaoh, we oppose you, and so we're not going to do what you said. No, he, he uses, the, he rewards them for what they did. And he rewards them because they oppose this terrible thing. Now, there's, a, there's an, um, 
there's an obvious connection here between this, this story and, and our current abortion situation. Right? That's, that's something that we, that, we wrestle, that we have in our country where it's legal and it's something that happens and we go, well, this is very similar. Right? This is babies being killed as they come out of the womb. Killing babies in the womb was the difference. Uh, and I would say yes. But the other thing I would say is we see how, what they do here. Right? We see these women and, and applaud their efforts and see what they do. And, and this is what I would suggest in, in, terms of, um, in terms of what can we do about it? Right? What can we do about it? Because there might be legislation. I don't know. I don't get involved with that kind of stuff. So I'm not going to even talk about that side of it. You can argue that amongst yourselves. Um, the legislation side of it. But, but I want to tell you a, a, a story um, because I think that the solution to this uh, issue and this problem is the gospel. And it's the gospel and it's individuals going to individuals and, and, inter, and, and, and intervening and with the hope of the gospel. Because when you get women that get in this, these situations where, where that's what they think the solution is, they need the gospel. They need the love. They need Christians intervening in their lives. And I'll tell you a story of, um, of a woman that I know. Uh, she, she got to know this couple uh, who were having a baby, and, and she talked to them, and, and she wa- asked to, to adopt their baby because she knew that they didn't want the baby. Uh, and she ended up adopting it almost right out of, right out of the, um, the womb. But this, this couple, that she stayed involved in their lives, and she kind of had some visitations, and, and we kind of allowed them to see the baby. Um, and, and then this couple gets, a, gets pregnant again. And so she, uh, and, and this woman comes and asks her to drive, uh, to drive her to the abortion clinic. Uh, and that's the wrong lady to ask to drive to the abortion clinic. That's for a ride. Um, because she just intervened and just talked to her and talked to her about it and talked to her about options. And she found another family that would be willing to adopt this baby, th- this baby. And so she talked her into that. Uh, she, she gave her that option. And then that happened two more times. And so now there are four families that, that have babies that are siblings and they know each other and they're kind of friends and they, they have these babies that this woman would have aborted 100% if it were not for the inter- intervention of this woman of this Christian woman that, that, that chose to get involved in this woman's life, to reach out to them. There was a couple who would reach out to her and, and care for her and, and continues to try to, to draw her to Jesus and intervenes with the gospel, intervenes with the love of Jesus. That's what, from the earliest days of the church, that's one of something that, that Christians were known for, was that, that Rome, in Rome it was a major practice to essentially abort babies by throwing them into dumpsters. And Christians were known, the early church was known for rescuing those babies. And if we as Christians can become known as people who reach out in love and say, no, we want these children, we want these, these babies, we, we think that it matters. And, and these women that are in desperate situations, we can come alongside them and bring them in and show them the love of Jesus, that Jesus loved them so much that he died for them, that he gave his life, that they might have life, that they can find forgiveness, they can find hope, they can turn their life around by turning their lives over to Jesus. We can be those people that come alongside people rather than people that stand in their face and, and tell them how much God hates what they're doing. That's the difference. 
Or that's the difference is, is looking at a woman who's in a desperate situation and they're saying, God hates what you're doing. Or coming along and saying, please don't, God loves you. That's the question that we have to, like, who do we want to be? Who would Jesus be? That's the question we have to answer, ask ourselves. Because as, a, as the church in America, we're, we're known for the former. We're known as people who are saying, God hates you, and here's why, because of what you're living, how you're doing. God hates you. And, we, and that's, that's not the message that we received, so I don't know why that's the message we would think we should pass on to people. We gotta become people that can come alongside people that are in desperate situations and, and see the pain that they're going through because that's not, that's not something that happens joyfully. That's not a decision someone comes to joyfully. We gotta become people that are compassionate and loving, that take the love of Jesus, the hope of the gospel to those people. And in doing so, we can be like these Hebrew midwives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the, uh, the love that you have for us, God. And we want to be the kind of people that, that take that love to the world. God, we ask you to give us opportunities, to give us, um, give us chances to do that, to, to put us in situations. We want to pray for situations where you can use us to show your love to people that we encounter. Open our eyes to situations that are already there, God, and bring people into our path that we can show that love and compassion and grace and mercy to that you showed us. God, we want to live for you. We want to glorify you. We want to, as we suffer, as we have troubles, both daily troubles and, and, and as the church around the world is persecuted, God, we want to thrive by relying on you. We want you to show us how we can rely on you. We want our allegiance to be to you. We want to see ourselves as members of your kingdom first and foremost. And we want to follow you, God. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.